Hi, Robert Glenn, Jay Warner Wallace here. I'm so glad you guys are doing a series, I Believe in God, But. That but with the three dots is important because we all have questions and, and concerns and some of us are more skeptical than others. And this is a series that's designed to help you answer the important questions. So I'm going to include a short message today for you that will help you examine the resurrection to see if it's the most reasonable inference from evidence. The resurrection of Jesus is the single most important piece of evidence in the entire Christian worldview. And Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if this isn't true, then we have been lying to you. We have been false witnesses. That's why I think this message, this single piece of evidence, is the most important piece of evidence you could ever examine if you're curious if Christianity is true. So let's watch this together, and I hope it will help you to understand how important evidence is to the Christian worldview and why your trust, your belief, your faith is not grounded on wishful thinking, but is instead reasonable in light of the evidence. I wasn't raised in a Christian family. I had been working cold cases in Los Angeles. Guys, as a matter of fact, we've got some video here. I'll show you that if you've watched Dateline, do you guys like shows like Dateline or? So I, I've spent a lot of time working unsolved murders. There's no statute of limitations on a murder. So if you've watched Dateline, you've probably had a chance to see some of these shows, some of these episodes that we're gonna talk about tonight. Some of the murders that I've worked have been really sad to, to work. And I was not a, an atheist because I believed that there was not a good God who would allow this kind of evil. Evil was not my issue. I just thought this was a stupid claim. And most of the Christians that I knew were not very thoughtful, if I'm honest with you. I want to share with you some things I've learned working homicides. I'm going to show you, I'll make a case for why I think the resurrection is true. Look, in all these cases, what we're trying to figure out is what is the most reasonable inference from evidence. You know why? Because that's the standard of proof. It's not beyond a possible doubt. It's beyond a reasonable doubt. That's huge, folks. You know that, right? You're not trying to prove something. I can't prove anything beyond a possible doubt. It's possible you're not even here right now. You're still in bed from last night. You've dreamed the entire day. That's at least possible. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, no, I can't be possible. I can pinch myself. The pinch is part of the dream. Heck, you could be in the matrix right now. You could be hooked up in a little... Come on, you could, right? It's possible, but it's not reasonable. And that's why the standard is not possible doubt. It's reasonable doubt. Does that make sense? And the question, of course, is what, how do you determine that? How do you ever figure out what is reasonable? Well, I'm going to give you a process. We're going to start off with something gruesome. And I get to see that every day. There's not a single case I work that is not an explicit example of evil. But we work through these scenarios to figure out what really happened. So we're going to take a look at a death scene together in order to determine what the most reasonable inference is. So here's our death scene. So let's say we found him on the ground. He's dead. How do we determine what kind of death this is? There are four ways to die. So what we're going to do is make a list of these four explanations. We'll put the evidence on that side, dead guy laying face down. Explanations on this side, natural, accidental, suicide, or homicide. All we do when we're trying to figure out what happened at a death scene is we ask the question, which explanation best explains the evidence? That's all we're asking. Which of these explanations can I cross off as unreasonable? Go ahead. Suicide? Well, if he intentionally took too many pills, he would look like that. 
If he accidentally took too many pills, he would look like that. If I poisoned him with too many pills, he would look like that. If he had a heart attack, he would… Do you see how right now all of these are equally reasonable? I can't cross out anything. Let's change the scenario. If he was found with a pool of blood or center torso, would that change things? I think it would. What can I cross out now? Yeah, I think it's not. This is, is it possible that it's, sure, it's possible. Anything's possible, but it's not reasonable. We don't care about possible. We only care about reasonable. Off it goes. Can I cross out anything else? Not really. I got to roll them over. Let's do that. Let's take a look at what, what if he was laying face down in a pool of his own blood and he's got a big hunk of knife sticking out of his back on Easter Sunday? How would I explain this? Can I cross out anything? Yeah, I can't imagine how he would accidentally kind of back in. I think, I, is, is it possible? Yes, but it's not reasonable. Off it goes. Make sense? But is it a suicide? I mean, even I could do that. Let's leave that on and change the scenario slightly. What if he's a dead guy laying face down in a pool of his own blood? He's got multiple stab wounds, upper back. Would that change things? I think it would. Now, I, I, unless you are incredibly flexible and very committed to the cause, it's kind of hard to do that. Would you agree? That's going to come off. But if there was any question, what if I also found bloody footprints leading out of the room? Would that confirm that this is not a suicide? I think it would. This is how I work every homicide that I've ever worked. I simply make a list of all of the evidences, and I compare them to all the possible explanations. This is a process, and I've written about it in the book. I drew it this way in the book so you can see my drawings. Uh, this is called abductive reasoning, abductive reasoning. Could we take this process and apply it to the most important question in all of Christendom, the most important single piece of evidence in your Christian worldview? I think we could. That would be the resurrection of Jesus. Now, Paul tells us that this is the most critical piece of evidence of anything he writes about. He says, if the resurrection is not true, number one, you have no hope. Why do we have hope for Davy and his wife? Why do we know that a God can overcome any evil? Why? It's the resurrection. If the resurrection didn't occur, there is no hope for us after this life. No one rises from the grave if Jesus didn't rise from the grave. And worse than that, Paul says, we've been lying to you, and you all bought it. And let me tell you, as an atheist, I thought you had been lied to, and you all bought it. How would we determine if this is a good piece of evidence, if this actually happened? Well, we could do the same thing we did in the crime scene. We could use abductive reasoning. We have a crime scene. We have an empty tomb. Let's see if this process works for us. I think it will. Now, the question, of course, would be, though, what would be considered evidence in the room? Well, to help me get the list of evidences, here's what I did. There's a scholar named Gary Habermas and another scholar named Mike Lycona. They wrote a book called The Resurrection, Case for the Resurrection of Jesus. Here's what Gary did. He talked to every scholar on the resurrection from those who are the most liberal theologically and don't even believe in Christianity, don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Believe it or not, there are scholars who don't believe that this happened. All the way to the scholars who are Orthodox Christians who believed this is true. And he asked a simple question. What are the things that everyone believes, even if they don't believe in Christianity, they do believe something about the resurrection? I was one of those guys as an atheist. 
I would have said there are four things as an atheist that I believed were true about the resurrection. I'll give them to you right here. I would have said, yeah, I believe that Jesus lived and he died on a cross and he was buried. Who cares? That does not mean he rose from the grave. You can believe that and still be an atheist, and I was. And I would have said, yeah, no one ever found the body. That's clear. Look, if you want to end this charade in the first century, let me tell you how you do it. You get the body of Jesus and you drag it around town. Game over. Or you get the original eyewitnesses to recant. Either one of those two things is game over. Make sense? Those things never happened, though. But you can believe that and still be an atheist. I can explain the empty tomb a number of ways. I can explain the crucifixion. Who cares? Does not mean he rose from the grave. Here's the third thing. The disciples said they believed they saw him rise from the grave. People believe all kinds of stupid things that aren't true. This could be just another stupid thing that's not true. I can give you those three points. Okay, fine. But this does not mean Christianity is true. I'll give you a fourth thing. It does appear that they changed the entire Roman Empire in about three generations, but so what? All kinds of crazy movements start that aren't necessarily true. I could believe those four things as an atheist. I did. But the question is, how would I explain those four things? And that's where it gets interesting. I think there are actually seven ways to explain the very basic pieces of evidence in the room, and only one of these explanations is yours. The first six you could offer as an atheist. Yours is the bottom one, that they're just accurately telling us the truth, but I held to one of the first six. Now, tonight we're not going to go through all six. I'm just going to go through the top three, but I will send you the video of the other three, okay? Here's what I would have said, really? So you think that Jesus rose from the grave? Have you ever seen that happen before? Uh, no. So you think that people rise from the grave? Really? How do you know he was dead? You think he was dead? Why would you think he's dead? Wasn't he crucified next to two thieves? Yeah. When they came around to see if the people on the cross were dead, were the two thieves dead? Were they? No. So why do you think your Jesus is dead? He's not dead either. He looks bad. He's passed out. But he's not rising from the dead. He's just resuscitating from being unconscious. So I would have said this first answer actually works. Jesus didn't really die. After all, the two thieves weren't dead. Here's the problem with that, though, as I thought about it and as I investigated it. Jesus' path to the cross is different than the two thieves. Jesus was beaten badly before he got there. We know that from reading the accounts. Have you guys ever seen The Passion of the Christ? Who's seen that? Have you, who's, who in this room has seen that twice? What is wrong with you sick people watching that movie twice? That's hard to watch once, isn't it? And so we know what he suffered. And that's where there's a piece of hidden science in the Gospels, right here in the Gospel of John. You may have read over this. You may not have been thinking about it. But there's a piece of hidden science in this passage that demonstrates that Jesus is dead. Look what it says. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man. Why are they doing that? Because those guys were not dead. The thieves were not dead. If you're on a cross and you're not dead yet, you know how we expedite the execution? We break your legs. You know why? Because people don't die of blood loss on a cross. They don't die of blunt force trauma on the cross. They die of exhaustion. 
They suffocate because they can't push up anymore to catch your breath. All you have to do to make it faster is break their legs. Then they can't push up and they suffocate faster. Make sense? So they broke the legs of the first man so he'd be dead. Then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. Well, maybe he's not dead. That's why this whole thing looks like a resurrection. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. And there's the hidden science. Do you see it? It's the blood and water. If you were creating this mythological story, you might put, okay, they stabbed him, and then some blood came out. No, that's not what it says. There was a separation of blood and water. Where would that come from? Do you realize that when he wrote that, nobody understood what John was talking about? The first people who read this, they're like, what does that mean? How does that even happen? As a matter of fact, if you read the church fathers, the people who were the leaders of the church in the first four centuries, and I have read all of them, they will try to explain that blood and water as something other than water. Water's not going to come out of his body. Come on. Blood might come out. What's the water then? Oh, it's got to be like a symbol, like a symbol of the Holy Spirit or a symbol of the water baptism, a symbol of something. It couldn't be water. Well, it could be water. If you've ever been to a car accident and someone dies in front of you, and I have been to those, your body does something interesting before you die. If you've ever been assaulted and before you die as a part of an aggravated assault, I've seen that also, your body does something unusual. It starts to shut down. And you go into what is known as circulatory shock, right? And circulatory shock is when you are so traumatized that your body is trying to conserve resources. Make sense? Now, if that happens and then you die of cardiac arrest, something else interesting happens. You suffer either what's called pericardial effusion, and that is where the water sac around your heart fills up. But I'll tell you this, I've been to autopsy after autopsy. If you stab that heart, it won't look like blood and water. It'll just look like runny blood. But if you're in the right position, you'll also suffer what's called pleural effusion. That's where water collects in your lung. Now, if you're dead because of a heart attack and I stab your chest cavity into your lung, I will see a separation of blood and water. And that is what's being described here. Now, by the way, how would John know that? This wasn't even discovered until the 19th century. So you tell me how it is that John inserts this little detail into the Gospel of John. He's a fisherman. Nobody understands what he's talking about. No church father understands what he's talking about. No one understands it until the modern era. He's clever, isn't he? He's a good liar. He inserted that little lie and it made us believe it. No, he's just describing what he saw. This is a piece of hidden science. Was Jesus dead on the cross? Yeah, because you can't get that unless he's dead. Most of you don't even know what dead people look like, do you? How many of you in this room, adults or otherwise, have got a job where you touch dead people regularly? Some of you do. Usually it's in the medical sciences, right? Yeah, I feel sorry for all of you. Yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. But the rest of you only know dead people from watching TV. Agreed? They look different, folks, than on TV. Did you know that? You can tell a dead person from across the room. Let, let me show you what I mean. This is the Los Angeles County Coroner's Office. It's in Mission Road in Los Angeles. This is where autopsies are done after a murder. They take the bodies here. 
If you're working on homicide in Los Angeles County, you have to be present at every autopsy. Did you know that? It's no fun. Because when they go to trial, they're going to call me to testify for the first autopsy because I'm cheaper than the coroner. That's what they do. So I have to go to all the autopsies. And I keep a separate suit for autopsy days because it smells in there really bad. And you can't get it out of your suit once it's in your suit. So I have a special suit in plastic just for the coroner's office. And you go through those doors and you go to the right and there's a window right there next to the clipboard. That is the Los Angeles County Coroner's Gift Shop. Yeah, there's a gift shop. You can Google it later. It's called Skeletons in the Closet, Los Angeles County Coroner's Gift Shop. I'm not kidding. Now, next door to this is the white building. And if you go into the basement, that's where the examination rooms are, okay? And I wish they looked like this. Oh, my gosh. I wish. They are never this clean because they have maybe, what, 600 bodies a month. They have to do autopsies on it. It's a lot of bodies. It just takes, you know, it's not easy. And when I first started in the job in the 80s, those tables were made out of wood. Why are you groaning? Because you know if there's a reason why there are grooves and then there's a grate there so you can wash the tables off, right? If they're wood, how many autopsies do you do before the wood becomes a sponge? It smells terrible in here. There's always blood everywhere. It smells like dead people because dead people stink. Sorry. And there's a sign on the back wall. I kid you not. It says no eating in the examination room. Like someone's going to pop out a liver sandwich and have lunch there, right? Sorry, I just had to say that. All right, so I want to educate you in what dead bodies look like. Here's why I say this, folks. If your Aunt Mildred dies tomorrow and it's a natural death, you're going to call the mortuary. You are not going to touch your Aunt Mildred, right? If it's a suspicious death, you're going to call the coroner. You're not going to touch a suspicious death either. Most of us experience deaths every year, but we don't touch our dead people. That's in the 21st century. But in the first century, you took care of your own dead. There was no mortuary to call. There was no coroner's office to call. People in the first century knew what dead people looked like, what they felt like, how they responded to the touch. We may not know it, but they knew it. I'm going to teach you now what dead people look like. This is the weirdest talk, isn't it? What are we doing here? This is called the mortis triad. Here's what happens. The first thing that happens is you start to cool down. You're a cooler because your heart, that hot blood is not pumping anymore. You will be colder to the touch. They would have noticed this in the first century with Jesus. Also, you get stiff, rigid. That rigidity is called rigor mortis. They would have noticed this about Jesus also. Remember, they were taking him off the cross. They were handling him. They are wrapping him. They were anointing him. And they were putting him in the tomb. They would have noticed it. But worse yet, the real giveaway is that when you die and your heart starts pumping, the blood starts to settle. So if you die on your back and I get there and roll you over, you'll be purple and red on your back because the blood is now drawn by gravity. That is called liver mortis. And if you're thinking that somehow in the first century they handled the body of Jesus and didn't notice these things, it's because you never thought about it before. So is it possible that Jesus wasn't really dead? Sure, anything's possible, but it's not reasonable 
And that's why I crossed it off. Okay, how about this? Maybe they were just conspiring to lie about this entire thing. Lots of people lie. How many of you in this room love stories and movies involving conspiracies? Raise your hand. Okay, how many of you think you know of some conspiracy that was successfully planned and executed at some point in the last 50 years? Raise your hand. Really? Okay, you're stupid. Put your hands down. <laughs> Seriously? Do you know how hard it is to pull off a conspiracy? For those of you who like conspiracy theories, I'm about to pop your balloon, okay? It's stupid. First of all, if you think you know of a successful conspiracy, by definition, it wasn't successful. <laughs> right? Okay. But there's more than that. You have to have five things to have a... I do these all the time for a living, okay? We take people to jail. If more than one person did the murder, we add a conspiracy charge. But you need five things to pull off a conspiracy. You ready? This is not... To mix a metaphor, this is not rocket surgery, okay? Think about it. Think about it. You'll get that tomorrow, some of you. Five things. The first thing you need is kind of obvious. You need the smallest possible number of people. It's easy for two people to commit a crime together and get away with it, much easier than 22. So if you think you've got some conspiracy involving an entire sector of the federal government, really? Come on. Also, you want the shortest possible time to hold the conspiracy. It's easier to tell a lie and keep a secret for a week than it is for five years. So if you think there's an entire sector of the federal government keeping a secret for four decades, eh, probably not. Also, this is what maybe you didn't think about. You need excellent communication between co-conspirators. Why? Because someone's going to get stopped and questioned. And when they get stopped and questioned, they're going to give a story. And then everyone else's story had better match that guy's story. Every detail he gives, they had better match. They better be able to talk to each other to know, what did you tell the cops? That's why the first thing we do when we get four or five people involved in conspiracy is what? Separate them. We don't want them to be able to talk to each other. The fourth thing is kind of obvious, too. You want close relationships. Moms, for example, never waive their rights to rat off their kids. They just don't. But kids almost always waive their rights to rat off their mom. Isn't that sad, moms? It is sad, huh? But it's true. Last thing, no pressure. If no one's pressuring you, you can hold a secret forever. Now, let me ask you this question. Let's apply this to the alleged Christian conspiracy. Oh, it's a big lie. They conspired together. Really? They have to have those five things in order to pull it off. So how many people are we talking about here? Is it just James and Peter and John? No, it's bigger than that. Is it just the 12? No, it's bigger than that. Remember in the upper room in Acts 1, 120 people. Remember Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 15, he says that 500 people saw the risen Christ on the same day. So we're talking about hundreds of people. It's already, to me, preposterous. There's too many people. But let's pay a little game of clue together, okay? Old school clue. Here's the old board. All you old people remember this board. How many of you have played on that board? Raise your hands. Old people. Here are the game pieces. Well, let's change the board, first of all. We'll make it the area around where Jesus did his ministry, okay? And the game pieces will be the disciples, 
Now let's play the game. The first part of our game is how long are they holding the conspiracy? How long? Man, six minutes, six hours, six days, six weeks, six months, six years, six decades. You want me to believe that over 600 people held this successfully for six decades? Okay. Okay, how about this? How did they communicate with each other? First century, no Snapchat, can't text each other. And they're not together in this holy huddle. They're all over the game board. How does Thomas in India communicate with Matthew? When he starts to get tortured and the guy is telling him, dude, I'm going to kill you right now. Why won't you just give us the truth? Matthew's already confessed this. He can't communicate with Matthew to see if Matthew's confessed it. Give it up. Paul's already drinking margaritas in Spain. It's over. <laughs> but he never gives it up. They can't communicate with each other. That, that's a problem. How about this? How much pressure are they experiencing? You've played Clue. You guys ever watched 24, the old 24 with Jack Bauer? That's what I'm talking about, okay? By the way, what would Jack Bauer do to get a confession in the old 24? Whatever it took, that's right, he would do it. That's exactly what was happening to these people. You know, they were all executed by way of torture. None of them ever recanted. Hmm, too much pressure. Well, were there any family groups like brothers? Yeah, there were some brothers. But look at Matthew down here in North Africa, or uh, Africa, the Gulf. You tell me, who is Matthew related to? Uh, zero. He's not even part of the discipleship of John the Baptist. Matthew is a no one named Levi who's collecting taxes. He comes in late. I think he'd be the first one to give it up, yet he writes a gospel about Jesus. Hmm. And finally, the question is, is this reasonable? I don't think it has anything that you would require to be successful in a conspiracy. Of all those five areas I gave you, none of these were present. That's the problem. Now, this is why, by the way, if you were going to do this, you're going to lie about this? Are you really going to have the first liar be a woman in the first century? Think about that for a second. In the first century, women were not even trusted to testify in court unless there was a second witness to verify their statement. Yet you're going to start a lie in the first century using Mary as the first eyewitness? Peter didn't even believe Mary. If you're going to tell this lie as a conspiracy, have the first witness be, I don't know, uh, Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus. Make somebody up. You're going to have, this is not a good way to start a conspiracy with Mary. Yet that's how it starts. I wonder why. Hmm, because that's the way it happened. So we're looking at this and asking, is this reasonable? No. Is it possible? Anything's possible. I don't care about possible. It's not reasonable. Hey, maybe they just wanted to see Jesus alive so badly that they imagined he was alive. Doesn't that seem reasonable? Think about it for a second. Remember on the road to a man, they don't quite recognize Jesus at first, right? Remember Mary sees a gardener in the tomb, a garden tomb, and, and then, and then they, they, she thinks, oh, it's a gardener. No, it's, it's Jesus. Well, maybe it's just a gardener, Mary. You wanted to see it so bad, you hallucinated it. Lots of people have suggested this. A lot of the skeptics you're going to meet in university will suggest this. It's called the hallucination theory, right? Well, I mean, let's just think about that for a second. Okay, I get it. Mary's by herself. 
She's all alone. She wants Jesus to be alive. That sounds reasonable. She might have imagined this. She is by herself, after all. And the next sighting I have is, say, uh, Peter. Peter's by himself, according to this uh, passage of Scripture. He wanted Jesus to be alive. Maybe he imagined it. He's by himself. James. James treated Jesus pretty poorly while they were still alive, it seems. And he might have wanted Jesus to be alive, so he probably imagined this too. And after all, he's by himself. But then we get to Paul. He's by himself on the road to Damascus. But do you think he wants Jesus to be alive? I don't think so. How do you explain Paul? And then we have this really weird thing where more than one person sees the same thing and reports it for years to come. These are the people on the road to Emmaus. There's more than one person seeing the same thing at the same time. Look, if you told me, look, how about this? I had a dream last night. And in this dream, I was driving a Tesla down Mulholland Drive in Los Angeles. And I'm telling you that dream. And you say to me, oh, dude, yeah, I know. That was a red Tesla. How did you know that? Yeah, it was a beige rag top. You had the top down. How did you know that? If you told me the details of my dream, that would freak me out, right? Because no one has group dreams. We don't have group dreams. If you think you know, now here's a group dream. They're dreaming this together. Think about that. They're not alone in this. There's lots of other group dreams too, I guess, like the three women who see Jesus at the same time. They're having a group dream. There's seven at the lake, right? Seven people who simultaneously see the same thing. I couldn't even fit them all in the same illustration, so I've got most of them. Oh, I'll add two more. Good. And then how about this? The disciples, remember, Judas is gone. Thomas is not present. They're in the upper room. Now we have 10 people who see the same thing, report it the same. Are they hallucinating together? Think about that. And then Thomas comes back, right? So now we've got 11. This is getting worse and worse. 11 people who supposedly see the same thing. Well, how about, and there's also on the mountaintop, remember? There's a bunch of people here. I'm not even sure how many there are. There's at least the, 12, the 11, probably more. And this is my favorite one of all. This is at the ascension of Jesus. Could you imagine what this must have been like? A huge group is standing here, at least, at least the 12 or the 11. Plus, all of his other disciples are probably here too. And he ascends. And wouldn't you have loved to have been there that day? Wouldn't you love to see that with your own eyes? You're about to. Ready? impressed? Thank you. Thank you. Do what I can. Do what I can to make the, uh, the, the miracle real for those of you skeptics. And then, of course, you have this passage, and Paul says in Corinthians, there are 500 people who see the risen Christ on the same day. Want to count those? Let's do that. There's a few up there. I'm a little bit short. Boop, boop. There we go. <laughs> Got them all. So why don't you see that was clear. Now look, if you doubted these visions, I could see why you would want to doubt these visions. There's an easy way to falsify them. Just run back to the tomb. If it's just a vision, there'll be a body in the tomb. Only problem is there's no body in the tomb. So we know they didn't hallucinate this. 
Did somebody steal the body out of the tomb? Well, now we're back to conspiracy theory. We've already talked about why that doesn't work. This is why Peter says, look, guys, we're not making this stuff up, okay? This is not some fancy story. We're just telling you what we saw. Get over it. I don't think this is reasonable. Is it possible? Sure, anything's possible, but it's not reasonable. Now, I'm going to skip down. I'll send these to you. I've given you what I thought were my top three, the ones for me that I thought were probably most likely. As a skeptic, this is what I would have said. If I'd have been atheist role-playing with you, I would have thrown one of these three at you this morning. But I'm going to skip down to the last one because the last one is your explanation. Now, I'm here to tell you one thing. Those of you who hold this explanation... Every explanation I've ever used or ever looked at has strengths and weaknesses. Does that make sense? Even the truth has weaknesses. I've had cases that I knew were true, but I knew my case was weak in a certain area. So I tried my best to make sure the defense team didn't find that weakness. Got it? Even when a guy confessed afterwards, I still knew before he confessed that it has a weakness. Your explanation has got a weakness. Did you know that? And it kept me out for a lot of years. Now, I will give you this. It does explain those four facts better than any other explanation. Of all the explanations I could offer, your Christian explanation does explain the evidence best. But it's got a problem. Your explanation requires a resurrection. Think about it. You're telling me I've got an explanation for this. A dead guy rose from the grave. I'm out. That's stupid. That's not history. We don't have miracles in history. Historical accounts are miracle-free. That's a genre mistake. If you're telling me you've got a miracle in your story, that is called mythology, not history. So I was out. But I want you to think about this for a second. What are we really investigating here? We're really investigating this claim. Are supernatural events like the resurrection ever the most reasonable explanation? That's really what I'm investigating. Oh, really? But I'm going to start by saying, well, there's nothing supernatural that ever occurs? Really? Well, then no matter what I show you, if I show you how early these accounts began, you'll find a way to jump over that. Why? Because you don't believe in the supernatural. Well, I can show you more evidence. I can show you how early they were quoted. I don't care. I don't believe in the supernatural. Oh, I can show you how archaeology supports the New Testament. I don't care. I don't believe in the supernatural. And then no matter what piece of evidence I show you, you will find a way to jump over it. Why? Because you don't believe in the supernatural. You end there because that is where you started and you refuse to move. That is really circular reasoning. You're just finding a way to confirm your own bias. That's what happens when your presupposition does not allow you to investigate the truth. So when it comes to Jesus and what happened when he died, we only have one of two possibilities. It's not that hard, okay? It's not rocket surgery. Either he rose from the dead or he didn't. Now, when I was first being asked to look at this as an atheist, my Christian friends would say, hey, this is a good answer. He rose from the dead. No, it's not. I, I, if you want me to, to look at all possible explanations, including the supernatural ones, I'm out. Why? Because there's a roadblock. I don't believe in the supernatural. I can't get to that answer because I don't believe in the supernatural. It's standing in my way. Really? 
Well, give me all of your naturalistic explanations for the resurrection then, Jim, and I will show you how every one of these does not work. Didn't matter to me. I'd find a way to jump over those, dig under those, go around those, because I was committed to that answer. Jesus did not rise from... Just take a look at this for a second, folks. Which of these two paths has got less obstacles? Do you see the difference? Not only that, look at the path over here on your left. There's only one obstacle in that path, right? And I put it there. That's my obstacle. I could take it down. That's my bias against the supernatural. I could, that's, that's there now, but I could easily say, you know what, I'm going to be open to that and take that down. If I did, that is clearly the most reasonable explanation from evidence. These other things I can't control. They are lame, and it's not my fault. But that is my fault. I put that there. Do you see how easy it would be to surrender it? And if I did, there's no problem here at all. That is clearly the most reasonable inference from evidence. Why do I tell you this tonight? Do you realize that all this time when I refused to believe it, the only thing that was standing between me and the cross, the only thing that was standing between me and the most reasonable inference from evidence was me. And for some of you in this room, the only thing standing between you and the truth is you. It's not that there's not enough evidence for this. You might have said that in the past, but that's not what it is. It's that you don't want there to be enough evidence for this because you haven't surrendered something. I had to surrender something, and you do too. Some of you, after all of this, even tonight, are just here because a friend brought you or your parents expected you to go or you have a good time when you come. You're not a Christian sitting in this room yet. Some of you even said yes in the past because you liked the girl sitting next to you or the guy sitting next to you or you like part of this group. But you don't think it's true yet. God wants your mind, not just your heart. I said this in the movie and I'll say it to you. I am not a Christian because it works for me. Because I'll be honest with you, this does not work for me. This is the most inconvenient truth you can hold in America today. This is not easy to hold. It's not popular anymore. And it's hard to live it out. Do you know it's a lot easier to take the dart and throw it against the wall and just draw the bullseye around wherever the dart lands? I did that for years. Now it's harder because there's a bullseye there first. I have to hit it. I don't often hit it. I'm also not a Christian because I was raised in a Christian family because I wasn't. I don't have any Christians in my family. My dad, who you saw standing in that photo, is still one of the most committed atheists I know. I wasn't afraid of hell or hoping for heaven. I didn't have a train wreck life I was trying to fix. I had a great life before I was a Christian. I am a Christian today because it's true. That's it. It's time for you to have a sense of urgency. It's time for you to have a sense of urgency. The reality of this is that I think we're in an interesting point in history. Don't you? 
Let me tell you what, cops are weird. Cops are weird folks. I'll, just, I'll be honest with you, cops are weird. We see the whole world divided between two groups. Two groups, okay? There are sheep and there are wolves. Sad, huh? By the way, in Scripture, how are we described? Sheep. That's not a compliment. Sheep are dumb, dumb animals. They don't even know they're being hunted by wolves. They get up every morning. Hey, where's Charlie? Charlie was here yesterday. There's just a big blood stain there where Charlie was standing. I don't know. I haven't seen him. Yeah, no kidding. They're getting picked off by wolves. Now, there's a third animal in the yard. The third animal in the yard is called a sheepdog. And sheepdogs stand between sheep and wolves. And that's why every sheepdog ministry in America is a law enforcement or a first responder or a military ministry. Because those are the folks that see themselves standing between the sheep and the wolves. I say this because I'll tell you something. It's time for all of you to stop being sheep. The culture is full of wolves. They don't believe what you believe about marriage, about your sexual identity, about sex in general. They don't believe what you believe or what Jesus taught. They don't believe that stuff. They're wolves. Now, not everyone likes sheepdogs. I get it. Even the sheep don't like sheepdogs most of the time. But I will tell you this. If the yard was full of sheepdogs, we wouldn't have a wolf problem. We have a wolf problem because we have too many sheep and not enough sheepdogs. You have a choice. Sheep or sheepdog. Don't you leave here without talking to your leaders. You better know why this is true, not just that this is true. Does that make sense? My wife and I were running the other day, and we saw this sign on this trail, a missing dog. There it is, a missing chihuahua. Think about it. That's sad, don't you think? Look at where the dog is missing from. What are the odds that dog is still alive? If the dog had been a missing Great Dane, I would feel better about it. Because missing chihuahuas on that trail, where am I going to find them? If I'm looking for my missing chihuahua, I'll tell you where to look. You look in the coyote droppings, okay? That's where your chihuahua is. <laughs> what? Don't kill the messenger. Now, if he's a Great Dane, you won't find him on the trail. You'll find him at the kennel because that's where Great Danes end up. So here's my challenge to you. Make a decision tonight. Make a decision this week. You have a chance to be a sheepdog, to know what you believe and to be able to defend it to your professors, to your culture, to the world around us. And you've got a choice about what kind of dog you want to be. It's not the size of the dog in the fight. It's the size of the fight in the dog. You've got to make a decision if you are going to take the time to know why this is true. I hope that helps you to understand why the resurrection is the most reasonable inference from evidence. Now, God has given us truth, but he intends us to understand and learn this truth in the context of relationships, both a relationship with him and a relationship with others. That's why this church is so important, why Riverglen is so important. On June 1st and 2nd, we're going to have a group link sign up for all kinds of summer activities. I want to encourage you that to not to take the summer off, it's tempting to do that, right? But instead, to use the summer to come together in a family setting. It's in the context of truth and relationship that God does amazing things. And this summer, there's going to be a ton of activities. I mean, from gardening to kayaking, you name it, you've got activities here. Don't take the summer off. Instead, 
Invite your friends to join you in this context of family because that's where you're going to be able to share the truth you just learned. It's in the context of truth and relationship that we can both influence the world. I want to encourage you to do that right here this summer at Riverland Church.